Welcome to Amplifying the Patient Journey, a series in which we speak with both providers and patients about the clinical journey with a neurologic condition and what recent advances mean for patients, their providers, and caregivers. In this episode, neuromuscular disease expert, Dr. Baruka Gogol speaks with Tracy High, mother of two patients with spinal muscular atrophy, about how the SMA treatment landscape and her children's lives have changed over the past 15 years. So um, I began working with neuromuscular patients um, initially in my neurology and neuromuscular training around 13 years ago, um, and I've been caring for uh, children with various neuromuscular diseases, including and especially SMA, uh, for especially at children's and um, as an attending physician um, over a little over 10 years. Um, so it's been a great privilege to be able to take care of these kids and, and see how things have evolved uh, over this time. The past 10 years, I mean, we've seen a tremendous shift in how um, how we care for the kids with SMA, who's getting diagnosed at what ages, you know, newborn screening, um, with the ability to just have treatment options. So just to kind of take a step back, um, you know, if you were a baby or a child given a diagnosis of SMA 10 or more years ago, um, and, and or for the kids that we were following in our clinics um, 10 plus years ago, you know, there, there were no approved uh, therapies that were that had the Food and Drug Administration approval um, that were directly uh, um, aimed at or targeting the treatment of SMA. Um, and so, um, at that time, there had already been a lot of advances in things like standard of care guidelines that helped in terms of thinking about and improving and really building even over the you know, 10, 20 years prior to that on improving health through better you know, understanding of nutritional needs, um, pulmonary needs, um, orthopedic, you know, things like spinal um, surgery considerations, um, equipment and rehabilitation needs. So we had already made a lot of great strides even at that point. And there was already a model, you know, very strong model um, for multidisciplinary care, but we didn't have uh, treatments that really got at the underlying disease that would improve the production of the SMN protein, which is important for these kids and adults and people who have SMA. Um, and so, um, you know, the, around 10 years ago, we were having, um, you know, patients where we would be making sure we were screening for kids who might be eligible for some of the emerging trials that were, you know, that had existed around that time and that were just taking off. Um, and so, uh, you know, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of making sure we could try to get kids in if they could fit into eligibility for these trial opportunities for these potential disease modifying therapies. Um, and then we were slowly at meetings starting to hear about the impacts of these therapies and really blown away by, you know, that maybe these were actually going to make a big difference for these kids. And then it was just anxiously waiting for when we can have them available in clinics to, to offer our families and to offer those kids. Um, and so, you know, where we are today now, we have three uh, therapies that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration um, that uh, children and the families can uh, consider. Depending, some of them are uh, unique to certain age groups, um, but um, you know, we now get to have a discussion about, um, for example, you know, what therapies people may want to consider. 
And when they're on therapies, you know, the discussion is a much more positive one. You know, what's what's stable, what's improved? Um, you know, are there functional milestones that these kids are now achieving that they would have otherwise probably lost? Um, so it's a much more hopeful um, and, and uh, I would say just each visit is so exciting to hear what this family is, what the kids will tell us um, that, um, you know, that they've been able to accomplish um, and, and how that helps them day to day. So, um, so a, a dramatic shift, I guess, in, in terms of overall in the care of SMA. My name is Tracy High and my husband, Aaron, and I have two sons with SMA, um, Maximilian goes by Max. He will be 17 in November and Alexander goes by Alex and he's just turned 11 and entered the sixth grade. So we're a family of four that have lived what we refer to as the SMA lifestyle for many years and have uh, been fortunate to watch this changing landscape occur right before our eyes. Um, so it's been it's an it's been an interesting journey for our family personally, um, but uh, also kind of a bittersweet one because all of the therapies that she spoke about are um, therapies that my children can take part in, but maybe aren't going to receive the full benefit of due to their current ages. Max started uh, showing signs of not progressing when he was three months old. At that time, I took him to his pediatrician and she said, you're a first time young mom. And I said, I'm a first time young mom who's been around a lot of babies. I have a lot of younger cousins and this is not what a baby does. And it took until about five months before she said, you know, I think we need to look at some physical therapy. Uh, he might be low muscle tone. And then about a month of physical therapy and the physical therapist said something is going on. And it took about 10 months to get in. When he was 10 months old, we were able to see a geneticist. And at the time they said, we don't even know if this geneticist is going to be able to tell you anything. Um, this is just the quickest doctor who could possibly provide answers. And the geneticist knew right away. Um, my son showed all the signs of spinal muscular atrophy, uh, most specifically the quivering tongue, which is unique to the condition. Um, and so we were given the clinical diagnosis at the age of 10 months, and then genetic testing came back at 11 months for Max. So, um, he was considered a type one at that time for all intents and purposes. Uh, he'd never really sat up. And even though genetically they were, he had three copies of SMN2. So sometimes the doctors were in a bit of disagreement. Let's just say they weren't sure exactly how to classify. So they would say, oh, he's got three copies. That means he's the type two. And then they were like, no, we, we've decided that it's by presentation and we're going to call him a type one. So when we refer, when we're speaking to other families, we refer to him as a one, two, which isn't what necessarily physicians love, but in terms of other families, um, he's very different than a one because he is not trached. He doesn't have to lay flat. Um, he's very active. He's verbal, but 
he is a hundred percent G2 fed. He does not eat by mouth at all. He requires full support to sit up in a wheelchair. He requires extensive breathing treatments and BiPAP usage. So uh, he doesn't quite fit the type two category either. Um, so that was Max. Alex, we knew there was a chance he would have SMA. And uh, so he was uh, tested in utero and we were given the diagnosis before he was born. It was pretty abysmal. <laughs> um, they, the neurologist we had at the time, we were living in Charleston, South Carolina. Our family is active duty military, so we move frequently. And um, they brought us in the office and said, this is what the condition is. This is how the condition affects the body. And we, there is no current trials going on. There are no currently approved treatments or medications for this condition. And as far as we know, there's nothing we can do. We suggest you take him home and you enjoy the time you have because we give him a 50% chance to surviving until the age of two. And he was a very kind man. Man, he was a great neurologist. Um, this wasn't his specialty. And he said, now you have quit listening to me and you need to go home and wrap your minds around this. And he goes, I'm going to do my part and spend the next few days calling colleagues and figuring out who I need to send you to see to get the most up-to-date information. And, and he did that. And in fact, we're still in touch with this neurologist to this day. Um, we do FaceTime calls with him just for fun. He's retired. And um, he was really kind and he did all of that. And really didn't really give us options though. Um, gave us some other specialists to go see, gave us, um, didn't give us hope, was not able to provide hope for us. And my husband and I were not the people to accept no options. We immediately did what you did in 2006 and got online and started looking and there was no social media like we know it today it was all in chat rooms we found organizations that focused on spinal muscular atrophy we found families who led us to physicians and who said you need to get in and see pulmonary you need to get in and see orthopedics and it was really other families who gave us guidance at that time because the idea of having kind of a care guide was brand new. I don't even think it, it existed in a formalized style. It really was learning and me pressuring physicians to say, hey, can you get me a referral to go see this pulmonary doc? And then when I got to the pulmonary doc, arguing with the pulmonary doctor about why I needed this equipment and him telling me, there's no way we can't give you this equipment prior to him actually needing it, which then led to several hospitalizations um, and finally spending almost a month in the hospital and coming home with all of the equipment, um, kind of trial by fire. I said, it felt like drinking from a fire hose. You 
are just learning. This is how you do a CPT vest. This is how you do a nebulizer treatment. This is how you do a cough assist machine. Um, the, the hospital we were at had one cough assist machine, which was pretty insane. And this is how you give a G-tube feed. This is how you run a feed pump, I, all of that. And they trained us for about two weeks in a pediatric ICU and they sent us home <laughs> and they said, here's your new normal. And so I say all of that to contrast my younger son at, when he was born in 2012, the first stop we had was pulmonary. The pulmonary doc immediately set us up with all the equipment we needed because by that point, that was the level of change that had taken place. The idea that we can extend these children's lives, give them a much fuller life by intervening and helping them breathe and helping them keep their lungs clear. And so um, it was such, there was no battle. There was no arguing, no tears. <laughs> I mean, there were tears, don't get me wrong, there were tears, but there was just this completely different understanding in the course of five years. And there were also trials happening and things going on behind the scenes that allowed us to have hope which was exciting for a family who hadn't really felt that. Because to be quite honest, my son, Max, his first five years were extraordinarily difficult. He was put on hospice one time. Um, we almost lost him three different times to pneumonias from aspirating on his own secretions. Um, we, he had a time where a physician put him on a medication that ended up hurting his breathing and he would go into the ER every week um, via ambulance, um, even though technically this medication wasn't supposed to bother his breathing. And finally, we just said, we think this is it. And within 24 hours, he was fine. Um, so those five years were very traumatic, I think, for us. and. Then when Alex came along, not only was it a different scenario care-wise, but also he was a different presentation. He crawled, he sat up on his own. He, in fact, they actually retested him to make sure that the test was correct. That's how well, that's how well he met his milestones up until six months of age. So um, that's kind of their story, although that feels very long. I think for us, the conversations haven't changed so much as we have always kind of said in our house, live for today because you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. That has been our motto regardless. We also say, because we're rather morbid, everybody's terminal. <laughs> we Nobody knows what their expiration date is. So for us, my husband especially has always been very focused on the future, telling our boys like you can do whatever it is you want to do. Um, we'll figure out a way. We're, we are happy to go that mile, that extra mile, those hundred miles, whatever it takes to get you to your goal. Um, 
you kind of don't want to over plan. I always say plan for the best, expect the worst. <laughs> so I'm a little bit more morbid in that sense. Um, you know, there have been so many times over the course of especially Max's life that we've been told, don't expect him to make it past five. Don't expect him to make it past 10. Um, we opted not to do scoliosis surgery on him because his breathing is so fragile and we were nervous about what the outcome would look like. And they said, don't expect him to make it through his teenage years. And yet here I am dealing with a junior in high school who is taking AP biology and <laughs> AP anatomy and physiology and um, pre-calculus and going back and doing those as a scribe is not fun for me. We have hope because we've seen what the medications and treatments can do. We also live in the reality that they can only do so much based upon the time that my children were able to receive them. So my husband and I talked a lot when the boys were younger about um, wanting to never, wanting to see the day where another family never had to sit in a room and hear the words that we heard. And I think we're kind of there. I think that that day has come with the therapies that are available and it's exciting. It's exciting for those families, but it's kind of hard for us, right? Like there are still those of us who are fighting, but we might be the last generation of families who have really had to fight just for basic care. My kids have their own goals. They, uh, my oldest son, Max wants to be a I guess this is a thing, it's a government biologist and wants to look at the research that people submit to the government and kind of review it. And that is where his own reality has come into play. Biology has always been his first love and um, knowing that maybe he can't be the hands that do the experiment he thought, but I could be somebody that evaluates the experiments that are being done. So it's interesting watching his reality. You know, we tell our kids, you can be anything you want to be. It's not exactly true. You know, it's, it's just not. Um, I would never be able to be a world-class gymnast. Just wouldn't happen. <laughs> so that reality has kind of hit him. When he was five, he wanted to be a firefighter. We all know that was not going to pan out. Um, but so he's got that goal for himself and we have said, we'll help you achieve it. And he wants to go to college. He, and we want him to go to college. We want him to experience life as much as he wants to experience it. Uh, his care has been, um, we're fortunate to have private duty nurses who do an exceptional job at helping care for him um, and a great medical team. Uh, we really believe and even a great school system. My husband and I go into every meeting and we go, you know, perfection is our goal, but we know it's hard to reach. And as long as everybody's working for the good of Max, then we're all on the same journey here. We're all like progressing towards the same goals. Um, so for Alex, he is a much stronger type. I had to shut my door because he was actually practicing his trumpet. <laughs> you didn't want to hear that. <laughs> Um, 
So he is very outgoing. He wants to be a doctor and specialize in family practitioner as a family practitioner. Uh, I don't know if all of this was because this is the world that they live in or if this would have been him regardless of what SMA said. Um, I'm, I'm kind of nervous. I don't know if you've ever seen the show House. Um, I'm kind of nervous that's the kind of doctor he would be. Because <laughs> his personality is a bit blunt. Um, but uh, that's his current favorite show right now. So we watch that a lot. My husband also has a unique sense of humor. So I credit all of that to him. It's not me. Um, so he wants to be a family practitioner. He also has lots of goals and we've said the same thing. We're, we'll reach, you know, we'll reach whatever you want to do and um, making sure that he, they're on the RISD plan right now. Like that's a huge part of it is keeping them healthy and able to do the things that they want to do. The first thing that I did after Max was diagnosed was find a hobby I could do at the house that helped me feel productive in life. And so that ended up being gardening. And I thought I can go and I can plant flowers and I can make something beautiful and I can keep it alive. And I know this sounds crazy, but I was like, I may not be able to keep my kid alive, but I can keep this flower alive. And that sort of gave me a level of satisfaction. And it also provided an outlet where I was still close to home and able to be very present, but could feel like there was breathing room. So that was the first thing I did. I had never been into plants. But I thought if I'm going to spend all of this time at home with a child, I want everything I look at to be pretty <laughs> and colorful and bring me joy. So that's the one thing that I would say changed almost immediately. Um, like I said, my husband's military, so he refers to them as the pillars of resiliency. It's a very military thing. And he always jokes, everybody has three pillars of resiliency. So for us, it's working out. We um, both my husband and I are very dedicated to exercise. Uh, one, to keep our bodies in shape because we do so much lifting of the children and to make sure we're healthy, but also it's a great way to work stress and anxiety. Um, and we want to be here and as healthy for them for as long as possible, because the only thing worse for a family like ours of watching your children suffer and pass away is the idea that you might pass away first because you're as a parent, such an integral part of their care. So we're very focused on our own health. Um, and then, you know, I, I hate to say it sounds cheesy. We do date nights. We do date nights. Some nights that's not possible depending, but maybe we just make it a point to like sit on our porch with a glass of wine and take 15 minutes just to decompress from the day. So we do prioritize time together and times of respite where we're just like, we're all taking a break. We're all taking two hours, go to your own spaces, do whatever you've got to do. And honestly, um, Rizdaplam gave us some of that freedom because prior to the medication, Max would need to be suctioned every few minutes. And one of the first big changes we noticed was that we could go an hour without suctioning him. 
which is a huge difference when you're used to having to literally have a suction machine at your fingertips at all times and not be able to go more than a few steps away. It's like the idea that I could be cooking dinner and not have to walk away 10 times is amazing. So, um, yeah, so I think that's what we do. We, we work out, we relax, make a point to make, to actually relax. And we put a pool in a few years ago and that also helped uh, it's exercise for the boys. And also it, um, it's a way to like leave without leaving. My husband and I can go out if we've got enough nursing coverage, we can go out and spend an hour by the pool and kind of feel like we got a mini vacation. So we're very good at that. And then we also, we don't get to travel together because we never want to leave our kids. Um, there are just too many decisions that we don't want to put on other people at this point. Uh, so we each plan a trip with friends. So I'm actually going to France for a week next week. So, but we're fortunate for that. So we're excited that we can do that. Just a thanks also to Tracy for, for really going through kind of their journey. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think even, even though, you know, we've spoken so many times in the clinics, I mean, just learned a lot, you know, just about how these discussions and how the experiences really, you know, just personally touch each home and household and family. And so it's, it's, um, you know, helpful to hear all of that too. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, so yeah, um, in terms of the changes, I mean, um, I guess there, you, you could think about it in a few ways, you know, there's the, the conversation about how to care for these children is one piece. Um, and of course, a big part of that, you know, that we talked about before is that there are, um, you know, beyond the, the supportive care measures, which do make a big impact, of course, um, you know, the, how can we improve pulmonary care? How do we optimize nutrition? How do we keep these kids out of the hospital and having regimens that can keep them as healthy as possible at home? Um, and, and so on. Um, it, you know, so, so that piece of the care and it, it is still an integral part of the discussion and it hasn't gone away. And it's just as important, if not more important to talk about how do we support these kids knowing that what they're doing, how they're doing things might be shifting um, and you know, hopefully improving, um, but that means their needs will be shifting um, and we need to meet those new needs and figure out also maybe what, what services, what therapies, what supports um, do they need to help them maximize that, that maybe that new skill set or that new, um, that new level of function. Um, the other piece of the how to care for, you know, discussion is um, the treatment options. And so, um, you know, figuring out, um, you know, for a given child and their age, uh, depending on what treatments they may be eligible to receive of the three um, FDA approved therapies, um, you know, it's a discussion about what are the risks, what are the benefits, what works for your family and what works for the child, especially if it's a school age or older child who can really articulate um, you know, maybe they can articulate their preferences because perhaps certain ones are more invasive than they want, or some of them, they don't like the side effect profile that we've, you know, reviewed. So the, um, the decisions that are made are unique to every family and to every child. Um, and, and so, um, you know, it, we spend a lot of time also talking, I think about, you know, how do we make these decisions and families are always trying to figure out what is the right, you know, what is the right decision? Certainly, um, you know, the decision to, to help improve function, you know, is a basic one, but then the, the path um, that any given person takes is slightly different. Um, 
in addition, uh, you know, I think that the discussion and conversations are a little bit different. I will say it kind of is a little bit almost like a divergent of two different sets of conversations as Tracy kind of highlighted, you know, there are the families that were living with um, children who had a diagnosis of SMA already before a lot of these therapies, you know, before these any of these therapies were approved. Um, and and that saw you know progressive loss of some function um, because this is a degenerative condition and those motor nerves the motor neurons that are lost some of them you know will not return with with treatment those that are surviving and are sick we hope will improve and and there can be some restoration um, for which the you know is the basis for the improvements we do see um, and so it you know for for the families with known, uh, you know, who were living with SMA already, it was certainly an exciting time. And I think as some, you know, as, as she articulated, as I think I've heard from other families, you know, while there is certainly that excitement moving forward, there is also that moment of, you know, oh, if only these treatments were, were available <laughs> 10 years before. Um, but we work through, you know, what, what can we see, you know, what can we hope for, um, you know, for that child based on where they are in their current function um, at, at that time and, and potentially, you know, the impacts of these treatments. Um, so that, you know, I will say no two discussions are the same. Um, and even as she mentioned for two kids, you know, no two, no two discussions, even for two children in the same family may be identical. Um, and then the discussion and conversation for um, the other group, you know, the, the, those babies that are coming through newborn screening programs, this is a whole different way of talking about SMA. Um, and it is definitely hopeful, you know, to be able to intervene and, and see, you know, the impact of these therapies very early, but it also comes with its own challenges. Um, these are newborns to a mom and dad who, you know, or, or to parents who, um, thought they have a healthy, perfectly healthy baby in front of them that they took home from the hospital. And at, you know, within the first week of life, they're getting a call from their pediatrician and the newborn screening program saying their baby may not be healthy and may have a fatal, possibly fatal disease. And um, that can be hard to even believe, you know, I mean, you don't see it. Uh, some of those signs that the, the tongue quiver, the fasciculations, the weakness, even maybe the drop in reflexes. In some instances, you might see it. In some cases, it might not yet be there, thankfully, but um, it can be um, a period of denial, a period of um, just trying to adjust to catastrophic news. Um, and while we as the healthcare team think, well, you know, at least we have these therapies to offer and so things will get better. There is also that, you know, there's clearly that, that very, um, that very critical period where there's a lot of communication to try to convey um, you know, how serious the disease is, but also how serious we are as a team to make sure we can help those babies and help their families through this really hard time. Um, so um, there is a lot of hope, but there are also on both groups, those who are previously diagnosed and those who are coming through newborn screening um, these are still very serious discussions. And again, I think discussions that, um, you know, fortunately, um, you know, within the centers, within these neuromuscular programs, um, you know, we, um, we, we try to make sure that we can offer, um, A, you know, as much up-to-date information, the therapies that are available, the trial opportunities that might be available for families, um, and, um, you know, and the additional resources um, that, that can help them in navigating that, that new journey that they may be on.
I, you know, I think that the most important thing that, that as the healthcare team we can do for our families and for their children, um, you know, is, is frequent communication, but also being as transparent about our thought process. And so, um, you know, if, if there's a child, uh, I'm going to give a scenario around new diagnoses, and then and also we can kind of speak to the, you know, the previously diagnosed kids too. But but for, for a, a, a baby coming through newborn screening, or maybe a, a young baby or child who didn't come through newborn screening, but is newly diagnosed, and SMA is new to that family, um, there are going to be hundreds of questions about, you know, what does this mean? What does my child's future look like? How effective are the therapy? You know, if we've reviewed therapies, right? How effective are these therapies going to be? Will my child sit? Will they walk? Will they go to school? If they walk, will they be 100% normal? And um, we have to be very transparent about the things we know and also those things that we don't fully know. Um, and so I, I think one of my practice um, uh, one, one way that I practice really is to make sure I can, you know, I can speak to certain things with more certainty. So for example, if we know that babies treated early have really good pulmonary outcomes, they're not going on to the trachs and vents in the vast, vast majority of cases, if they're starting therapies very young in life, I can, I can be, um, fairly confident, at least from the data that's out there right now, that I can um, give that information, give that hope to families and, and be upfront. But as to where any given child may be on their long-term journey to what their motor function will look like, we do see from the data that exists that that might be variable. And babies treated in different clinical trials, for example, um, you know, in the same age group getting the same intervention might have two different outcomes in terms of what they achieve. And so knowing that there is a spectrum of the responses, um, again, very positive responses, but there's still a spectrum. I think we have to um, make sure that, you know, some of the, even though we're providing hope that we're also, um, not overstating, I guess, the, you know, the, the potential effect or exactly what any given child may do in one year, two years, or five years. Um, and that can sometimes be hard because everyone wants, you know, it, it wants to know what the future exactly will look like. Um, but what we can try to offer there is to say, you know, we will be part of that journey. And so we will try to meet the needs of that child from what they tell us they are doing and what maybe the next functional goal is and um, what other things they might need, um, whether it's you know services through our rehabilitation team or certain bracing or um, other therapies or things to help them to maximize what, what they can achieve and, and will achieve. Um, and, and for our you know, families that already had children with a known diagnosis, again, when these therapies you know, originally um, were approved and we were able to start offering them, um, you know, we, we tried to really set the goals and expectations. Of, I mean, you're kind of limited to what you know from the, the data that's out there. But I always like to just say, you know, let's be hopeful to see what, again, you know, we think there could be some upward potential and we, we think there could be some gains made. But certainly, um, you know, I try, to, I try never to use the word cure. Um, I, I try not to, again, uh, you know, if, if I have a child who was very weak, um, that tells me there was a certain amount of motor neuron loss. And I know that some of that's not going to fully come back. Um, that those that are, you know, and, and so um, even talking about 
conversations of reversing symptoms versus stabilizing versus maybe some modest improvements in things that, you know, in parts of their body that they are moving, um, are we going to see improvements there? Um, you know, if they're, um, if we can, as, as Tracy spoke to, if we can improve, you know, the secretions, if we can improve swallowing, if we can um, make a child even more resilient uh, to, um, to a cold, and that means they can stay out of the hospital. Um, you know, yes, that child, we didn't get them up and walking. We didn't get them maybe even sitting independently, but we're keeping them out of the hospital. We're keeping them at home. We're keeping them, you know, um, day to day, being able to go back to school and doing the things they love with their friends or the subjects they like to learn or their music class or art classes or things that they enjoy. And so um, the expectations are going to be different for every child. And we have to be, again, um, you know, as you said, we have to be realistic about what that discussion is for everybody. But even the littlest improvement is meaningful and makes a difference for, for these kids and families. I guess that'd be the most important thing I'd, I'd convey. I would like to point out this week is a prime example of exactly what you were talking about. Um, I have had a cold all week. Actually, I'm this, I sound the best today, but that's why I keep drinking water. Um, so, 10 years ago, that would have been debilitating fear in our home. If I had a cold, I would be masked. I would be confined to my bedroom. My husband would have called out of work. We would have gone into complete lockdown because the idea of Max getting a cold would have immediately led to pneumonia. Since starting the treatments, Max has not been hospitalized one time for a respiratory illness. And for our family, that's huge. Like, you know, no ventilators, because pretty much every time he went in the hospital, because we can manage a lot at our house. We have an oxygen concentrator. We have the BiPAP. We can, like, we can keep him breathing for a pretty good stint and, um, so hospitalization means we think he needs to be on a vent and that's having a supportive care team around us who trusts that we know how to keep him breathing. Um, but it, I was just thinking about it now, obviously I still took precautions. I don't want Max to get sick. I don't want any of my kids to get a cold. Actually, my youngest son, Alex brought the cold home and gave it to me first. So he was patient zero. Um, but he, and oddly enough, he's like a germaphobe, so we don't know what that was about. But um, just that little bit of, it took a long, it took years to get to the point where I didn't have a lot of anxiety if one of us got sick. So just now I noticed this week, I'm not really stressed. I'm masking when I go and work with him. I'm making sure I clean, wash my hands, do all of your basic things, but I wasn't at the end of the day, I also didn't think if he gets, a, if he catches this, this is the end of the world because it's not anymore. And that is a huge gift that people don't consider when they just think in terms of walking or running or playing an instrument. They don't realize the gift that is breathing. There are three things that I usually tell a newly diagnosed family because about every six months I get a message from somebody who knows someone who has a new SMA diagnosis. And I usually start with these three. I remind them that it's called practicing medicine, not perfecting it.
and that doctors mean well, but they cannot know all of the things all of the time and you have to give them a break. Um, you want to find a doctor who will care and who's willing to help and research, but to not have unrealistic expectations about their knowledge base. I had families say, I can't believe my pediatrician wasn't extensively knowledgeable on this one random condition. And I was like, well, your pediatrician deals with a lot of stuff and most of it's diaper rash. So, you know, it's just an unrealistic expectation to have. And so to be realistic when dealing with medical professionals and to be organized, we have kind of like their health resumes that just gives a basic synopsis of everything that they have major hospitalizations, medications that they're on, what their specialist names are, um, and then what our current needs are for today. Because inevitably we'll get in there, we'll talk, my kids will have an attitude, we'll, you know, whatever the case may be in the room, and I'll forget, oh, we needed a prescription for this one thing. So I always say, if you can go and be organized, it's huge. And it also earns you respect with your doctor. So you're able to build trust with each other. Hospitalizations. I always kept a picture of what Max looked like when he was well at the foot of his bed. Because I never wanted the nurses and the doctors who worked for him to think that, that what they were seeing in the bed was his normal. I wanted them to know that he was a little boy who loved dinosaurs and thought Jurassic Park was an invitation to try this kind of thing again, instead of a warning to not. And that he loves animals and liked to play and go to the movies. Like I wanted them to see the little boy that he was at home with us on his best day and not the struggling SMA patient that may be laying in a hospital bed. So those are my three things. I'm a big advocate for creating your own family culture. We are never going to be normal and that's okay. Um, frankly, sometimes I look around at normal and I'm like, oh, not so great. So I just say, you know, we're our own culture and we're gonna look different than what everybody else is doing, but we have our own priorities as a family. And so we sort of have adopted truly living counterculturally. Um, and to just lean into it a little bit instead of mourning the loss of the normal. And it's okay. It's, it's really okay. And there are gonna be rough days. I'm not gonna pretend that there aren't things that I miss. My son at 17 is not learning to drive a car. He is not um, worried about taking a girl to prom. He, you know, there are things that we mourn the loss of every day, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't have joy in life. And focusing on those joys is what we as a family try to prioritize. And maybe that means our days are different. Maybe that means this fall we spend time around a fire in our living room watching a movie instead of out at a football game, you know, but that's okay. So I think trying to find your own culture is huge. Uh, and it's kind of helped not living in the chaos of every day. I said, maybe I'd have been a terrible sports mom. <laughs> so it's probably for the best I wasn't one. <laughs> and not to live in a bubble either. 
I, you know, that was a concerted effort that we had to make knowing how sick Max would get when he was young is that, oh, we could probably keep him alive for a long time if we kept him in this bubble in his room and never exposed him to any germs. But what kind of life is that really? It, I mean, it's, it's just not. So that's when we kind of adopted the, we're not here for a long time, just a good time mentality and kind of weigh the risks at any given situation. Is it worth the risk of exposure for the joy that we're going to get out of this experience? Sometimes yes, it is. And sometimes no, it's not. And now that Max is older, he's very good about telling us what's worth the risk. As a as a pediatric uh, neuromuscular specialist currently, I think it's just, um, I guess I would express just how thankful I am to be able to actually practice at a time where we do have a different kind of conversation for some of the diseases we treat. And it's not there for all of them, um, but I'm so thankful for what we do have to offer families right now for SMA. Um, and I guess I'm just hopeful, you know, that, that these kind of advances in medicine, we will see similar um, opportunities for, for other, uh, other families and children with other diseases that we care for. Um, but it, it, the research that led to these therapies, the organization of the SMA community um, at large, you know, families, nonprofit organizations, trying to come together to make sure the community and the health, you know, outcome measures were in the best shape and organized in a way that would speed along these trials. I, you know, all of that has impacted what we can, you know, the pace of which, you know, these therapies can be developed and then could be available to these kids and every day counts. So I, I guess I would say just, you know, a gratitude <laughs> um, to, to where the science um, came and, and the fact that it then, you know, is, is available now for, that we can treat these kids. Um, you know, for, for clinicians who, um, whether maybe they're seeing someone in a, in a general neurology clinic or a developmental clinic or um, outpatient physical therapy or a pediatric office, um, you know, I know most of the babies will be picked up on newborn screening, but depending on the circumstances or there are a small number that will be missed. My recommendation is, um, you know, I, I always like to tell people I'm, I'm giving lectures to or, or you know, advising it. If you suspect SMA, if it even crosses your mind, reach out to a neuromuscular specialist, reach out to a neurologist urgently, um, find a way to test, look it up, you know, don't just say, well, let's just see if it, you know, if it gets better, um, you know, so if I, I kind of like to use it, you know, if you suspect it, figure out a way to make sure that they can test for it, someone can test for it, um, don't wait. Um, so that's kind of, you know, for, for clinicians or anyone in the, in the healthcare prof, you know, profession or therapies who might be encountering these kids in, in any setting, that's important. Um, and even for families to feel, um, you know, if, if for some reason that's a worry, you know, just to, to really be able to speak up and, and, and um, I, I don't want that to be missed. Is, you know, I don't want delays to that diagnosis. Um, and then, you know, just for, I guess one piece is, you know, really just for the families that we get to be on this journey with, um, uh, we know that, you know, there, there's so much that happens 
every day. And, you know, when I see these kids every four months, six months, you know, et cetera, in clinic, um, there's so much that these families do and sacrifice and, you know, to keep these kids healthy and happy and giving them opportunities and letting them grow and thrive. And so I guess more to also express that gratitude that that doesn't go unnoticed. You know, we know, we know how much everybody does. Um, and, and a lot of times in the visit, you know, we only have a short amount of time to focus on the, the you know, the, the medical things at hand, um, but certainly, you know, all uh, watching these kids grow, watching them feel empowered, watching them become, you know, unique individuals, um, you know, with their own quirky interests and hobbies and, uh, and aspirations. Um, you know, it's also a big credit again to, to the families. And, and, and so I'll, and I guess just saying that, you know, it's, it's really a, a care community and it's, it's, a, it's, you know, maybe not a community that anyone for these families and children thought or wanted to be part of, but, certainly one that, um, you know, we're happy to be part of that journey with them. And, and it's a, it's a beautiful community, um, you know, especially the estimate community and, and these families. I, I echo that. I tell people it is the best community you never wanted to join. And that is the SMA community in the nutshell from the first family I reached out to on our first diagnosis to the families that reach out to me now. Um, it's really the only reason I'm on social media at this point in life is because that's where you stay connected with a lot of these families. And it's not even that you even think about SMA as part of your daily journey at this point in life. You're just, you're living life and SMA is part of that life. And so, but it's nice knowing that there are other families that care and the practitioners who are dedicated at the MDA clinics, um, through Cure SMA, through all of the organizations, that um, they really do care about our kids. And you see that, you see they have a vested interest and they want success. And we have sat and had physicians cry with us on bad days and have them rejoice with us on good days. I've had physicians send me books in the mail as a gift. <laughs> so uh, we, it's a unique journey that we have been unfortunately blessed to be a part of. Um, I don't know what life would look like any other way. Like this is my reality. Um, so, but it's, I don't know that people really find community like this in other areas anymore. Thank you to Tracy High and Dr. Baruka Gobel for sharing their story and knowledge with our listeners in this episode of Amplifying the Patient's Journey. And thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to visit practicalneurology.com for more podcasts in the neurology field.